Welcome to the Wellness Guys Show with wellness experts Dr. Damien Christoph and Dr. Brett Hill. This episode of the Wellness Guys is brought to you by the all-new Sprouted Forage Cereal Breakfast Range. Did you know that when you sprout your nuts and your seeds, you can access more of the nutrition? Well, now you do. To find out more, visit www.foragecereal.com. Welcome to the Wellness Guys Show. This is Damien. And this is Brett. How are you, Bretto? I'm good, mate. I'm good. Just uh, home from the gym, ready for an interview. And uh, this is a good one we've done today, all about your favorite topic, Damo, poo. Poo, yes. I am fascinated with poo. I, well, I'm not fascinated with poo. <laughs> I, just, I just know that it's such a great topic because if more people understood what was going on with their gut uh, by looking at their poo and just – you don't have to touch it. You don't have to, like, sift through it. But just be aware of what's going on in your, in your gastrointestinal system. Then we'd have a healthier – uh, population. So our chat today is with uh, Dr. Paul Frooms and he's a gastroenterologist here. He's probably actually a Mr. Paul Frooms, uh, but he's a um, very smart man and he's been doing FMT, fecal matter transplant. He might be otherwise soon to be renamed as microbial transplant uh, or microbiota transplant. I think that's a really nice way to go. Who knows? It might be a bit more um, easily digested or a bit more tasteful to use those sorts of terms. <laughs> uh, but um, interesting chat, wasn't it, Brett? Because there's a lot of parallels to what we see in practice um, and in our profession as chiropractors. Yeah, I, I, I do agree. I think it's a fascinating insight into, I guess, the, the complexities of our medical system um, and the complexities of research in our, in our healthcare because, you know, there's a lot of challenges there in and around the way we uh, measure and compare research and, and how we draw those parallels between what we're seeing in the lab laboratory versus what we're seeing in practice and how we merge those two together so that we're ultimately getting the best possible outcome for the patients, which is what we're all about. And, uh, and you know, when you, when you see newer fields like this that perhaps don't have the funding yet um, and don't have the recognition yet, um, even within the medical sphere where it's probably, you know, easier than it would be for, say, you know, you or I as chiropractors to get the funding and to get the recognition, um, mm. you sort of, you see a lot of parallels there between what's happening at the moment in terms of all different um, alternative healthcare, whether it's naturopathy, whether it's herbal uh, therapy, whether it's, um, you know, all those different aspects. We're seeing similar parallels here going on with this fecal matter transplant. So it makes for a fascinating conversation for that from that point of view, but but also, it's just a fascinating conversation in general because of this approach and what they're doing. I mean, as soon as you start talking about, you know, poo and, and transplanting poo from one person to another, you all straight away you're thinking, well, that's fascinating. Like, I want to know more about this. What's going on? <laughs> you know, it struck me, uh, and you obviously our listeners will hear it, was that there's a brown market for this, that people are actually doing it um, in the backyard. They, you know, catch up with their that's mates, amazing. doing a poo in a blender, mixing it up, and then you know, putting it inside each other. I just think it's kind of strange. Like it's uh, it's a little bit too much for me, but um, and it's got to be a lot to be too much for me. So I, I did find it very, very fascinating. I love yeah. that. Well, I just assumed you were doing it, Damo. I know how much you love poo. I, I no, just assumed, you know, no. that was the reason I said no to the last dinner party you invited. I sort of was a bit worried, you know. <laughs> I know the true reason why you said no to the last interview party, right? You start me, Bretto. Uh, but I loved to where uh, Paul spoke about um, all the different areas where there's research going on into you know into the understanding of whether or not FMT uh, could could help people. Everything from rheumatoid arthritis all the way through to obviously gastrointestinal infection, but a lot of autoimmune diseases appear to be 
uh, related to the gut in the medical sphere. And we've been saying this as wellness professionals for generations. And so medicine yeah. finally catching up and, you know, don't ever underestimate, uh, you know, the wellness industry because even though medicine takes time to get there, they do catch up. And, and what's interesting is they're talking about um, leaky gut and, and that's what we've been talking about as naturopaths for, for decades. And so it's now being um, proven, the research has caught up with us and, and thank goodness there's brains like Paul Frooms who is actually putting all this into, uh, into action. It's great. Yeah, absolutely. And even things like, you know, the link between this and depression as well, don't you? That gut-brain connection, which has yeah. been you know, spoken oh, about for years again as well. You know, we're finally sort of catching up with that research as well, which is great. So it's a great interview, Damo. Let's get into it. it. Yeah, we'll get into it. But is it, just before we do go into this, Brett, I just think <laughs> it's worth thinking about. Um, it's it's definitely worth thinking about that, you know, it healing and helping people out and helping people get beyond disease it requires a thought and then from a thought it, it requires questions and then from the questions it requires exploration um, and so before we dismiss um, treatment protocols or management if it appears to be safe um, if it appears to be working for people and people um, appear to be getting benefit from it then I think it's wise uh, as humans to consider that maybe it could be beneficial as opposed to waiting for 10, 20 or 30 years until the research catches up before we implement it. Because I think about all those people that have suffered um, over the last 30 years with gastrointestinal functions, depression, um, you know, even to the extent of, you know, debilitating illnesses such as autoimmune disease. If the research finally catches up and says, hey, you're right, FMT actually works. Imagine all those tens of thousands, if not millions of people that actually suffered in vain because they waited for the research. I think there's got to be a slightly better way, uh, maybe a different approach, Bredo. Yeah, I agree, Damo. And if you just look at the case studies that Dr. Froome's talked about, you know, without that ability to do those, that research and, and to have those cases, then there's not going to be any of those case studies in order to be able to get the preliminary information to see that there may be a link to be able to find out more. So, you know, it is important from a scientific advancement perspective that people are able to do these trials of care um, and to see the results they get and to get these case studies and these reports back from people who've had this done to them um, so that then that gives clues as to the further advancement and, and to go up the chain in terms of the research as well. So it is important that we are being scientific about it, but it's also important that we're allowing the science to happen at that base level um, so that we can you know, learn what might be the next big discovery. Agreed, mate. Agreed. Are you ready to get into the interview? I'm ready. Me too. Brett, we're joined today by Dr. Paul Frooms. He's a gastroenterologist and working with faecal matter transplant. We're going to learn a lot about faecal matter transplant today, Brett O. Hope you are up for it. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for joining us on the Wellness Guy Show. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Damien and Brett. Well, it's, uh, yeah, don't forget Brett. Even though he's in Adelaide, we can't forget him. He's living uh, <laughs> He'll catch up. He'll catch up. Paul, um, it's a it's a unbelievably interesting topic, faecal matter transplant. I actually just did a seminar in Sydney on the weekend about gastrointestinal system and the gut um, with a guy by the name of Kyle Brock, and uh, and he wrote a book called The Gut Healing Protocol. Did a movie called The Gut Movie, and he had Thomas Barodi on his movie talking about uh, faecal matter transplants, and we watched him put poo into a blender and mix it up and 
then um, you know there was an assumption that what comes next is uh, an insertion of some kind. So a lot of people that are listening to this podcast understand a little bit about fecal matter transplant, but could you tell us a bit more about it? Yeah, sure. Look, it's a it's really just a way of instilling what we believe is a more complete form of probiotic. We call it the super probiotic. Think of it like this. When you buy a probiotic from a shop, you're getting two or three or sometimes eight different strains of bacteria. But we know that the microbiome in a human gut consists of well over a thousand thousand different um, subspecies of bacteria. So by doing a fecal transplant, you're instilling into somebody else's gut, which is presumably deficient in bacteria, a much more complete um, probiotic blend. In other words, you're getting thousands of strains of bacteria, which probiotics in capsule form just can't contend with. So it's a way of restoring what we call the phylogenetic richness um, and therefore function of your gut microbiome into a person who's got a microbiome that's impaired, if you like. Mm. And we, we oh, do it's... that. Because... Sorry, go on. Oh, I was going to say, it's fascinating, Dr. Paul. Uh, I've been exposed to this a little bit uh, through a friend of mine, Dr. Sam Costello in Adelaide, who you probably know of and have come across. And, uh, and it's just such a fascinating topic. And one of the things that fascinates me is I want to know how you choose whose poo to use because that just seems like an incredibly uh, interesting thing but also a difficult thing. Like how do we know who's got the good stuff um, that we can use to do this sort of process? That's a really good question. <clears throat> and there's been hundreds of research public publications on fecal transplant. And one of the most important aspects of fecal transplant is donor selection. And there is a well-published and a revised publication of the screening process, which was originally called the Amsterdam Protocol. And that was published back in 2000, I think in 2016, it was revised. So it involves a very detailed process. First, there's extensive medical examination and medical questioning of the patient. So the patient really can't have anything wrong with them at all, be it mental, physical, emotional, autoimmune, overweight. Um, <clears throat> they, can't, they, they basically have to be the healthiest people on the planet from a medical point of view. If they pass that uh, rigorous sort of health assessment, then they go on to do blood testing. And we do the same sort of blood testing that you would for a bone marrow transplant. It's very detailed, looking for any possible pathogen that they might have. If they pass that, they then go on to do all the stool screening for exactly the same thing to ensure that there's absolutely nothing that in the way of a pathogen that they might, they might contain that might be then transmitted to the recipient. So they, we end up, of every 10 patients we screen, about one to two past that screening process. Wow. It's pretty, that's rigorous. And it sounds great. It, it sounds like, yeah, you're doing like a, it, it, it's a, a good service. You know what I mean? It's not like you're just finding any person off the street who might have had a couple of boozy nights and maybe injecting <laughs> drugs and doing all those sorts of things. You're actually trying to find super healthy people to the best of your knowledge and the best that you can find out. And, and it's uh, very dangerous not to screen them. And, you know, people do a lot of DIY FMTs in their own backyard. Really? That's an incredibly risky thing no to way. do. <laughs> do they really? That's unbelievable. I am told by my patients there is there's a lot of that going on. There's a, there's a so-called black market. It could be a brown market, but it's still not mm -hmm. ideal, is it? It's not yeah, uh, a brown market. 
<laughs> oh dear there's gonna be a lot of poo jokes today i can feel it um dr yeah. Froome, um what are the sorts of things that uh, fmt has been shown already to be uh, successful with there's i know there's some work being done at st vincent's um with inflammatory bowel disease and those results are showing positive you know, you know findings uh, which is great what what are you guys noticing what have you found so well we know from the research that it's the single most effective treatment for a very nasty infection called Clostridium difficile. And that's where, um, I guess, FMT really came into its own. So that's well it's established. It's beneficial there, isn't it? Like it's like within it hours is. or days. Yeah, within hours. It's, it, yeah. it's well established as the, I guess, go-to treatment for you know, recurrent C. diff infections. So that got everyone thinking. And then, well, what else? So there's been... A bit of work done now in inflammatory bowel disease. <clears throat> There's about 42 studies done in ulcerative colitis, and the response rate, I think, has been there's more than 600 patients now that have been studied. And the, the cure rates vary between sort of 35 to 45 percent. Um, yeah, it's pretty, I mean, it's as good as any drug. We've, yeah, it's not a cure yet, but it's, a, it's, a, it's another approach that's kind of non pharmaceutical. Yeah. Yeah. These studies are all done in patients who are the worst of the worst, the ones that have failed all drug therapy. So, um, Crohn's mm. disease is the, the other form of inflammatory bowel disease where it's been it's been used. There's about um, 14 studies now done in Crohn's disease, and they have an overall sort of complete remission rate of around 50 percent, which is again better than Fair. most of the drugs we use for Crohn's disease. So, yeah. that's created a lot of interest. But there's been a lot of there's been a number of case reports. Um, very small studies in a few other conditions. So we know the microbiome affects body weight and it affects your appetite. So there's been a couple of studies done in obesity, um, which have showed mixed results. Um, and this was these were done because we know there's there's a, such a thing as a, an obese microbiome. It's one that absorbs a lot more calories, makes you a lot hungrier and less responsive to the hormones that cause satiety compared to a thin person. And if you do a fecal transplant from an obese human into a normal mouse, the mouse becomes obese. Um, and if you then cage the two mice together, the, uh, the microbes from the thin mouse are then are taken up by the obese mouse because mice eat their own stool and then the obese mouse becomes lean again. So we're very interested in, in whether that happens in humans. And so far, the two studies have shown a bit of mixed results. And there's work going on now in America along those lines, choosing ultra lean donors and trying to get their microbiome to take into an obese person. I've been, I've been supplementing oh, so with a bacteria. Sorry, Brett, I'm just going to, because this is topical. I've been supplementing with a bacteria called Bifidobacterium animalis, uh, species like this for uh, B420. And yeah. uh, it seems to get a couple of kilos off me, two or three kilos, and um, and then I kind of plateau. It's uh, it's it's kind of interesting. It is. That's one of the um, bacterial or probiotic strains that has been used and shown to reduce weight by a little bit. So it's a good choice for if you're trying to reduce body weight. But we um, need more. And now. that kind of that kind of leads into the next question i've got actually because damo mentioned that it sort of improved and then it plateaued so my yeah. curiosity around this is you know if if this person was living i guess a lifestyle that led to the development of a particular um bacterial population um you know if they don't change their lifestyle is it then going to be the case that you know despite this 
bacteria that you've added in, uh, that it's going to revert back to the previous uh, population? Like, like, is there a large component of lifestyle intervention that has to happen as well as the fecal transplant? Yeah, there's, you're absolutely correct with that. You've hit the nail on the head. In the, in the animal studies, they showed that if you controlled the diet, the rat stayed you know, they took an obese mouse and gave it a fecal transplant from a lean one and it lost weight. But we know that the animal studies show that if you let the mouse eat a high-fat, high-sugar diet, then it won't become lean no matter how many fecal transplants you give it from a lean mouse. So the same thing goes for a human. A diet is an incredibly important factor for two reasons. One, it will alter the makeup of your microbiome. So even though you're taking a probiotic that's been associated with weight loss or if you have fecal transplants from a thin person, you are going to counteract that effect by eating a diet that is going to nurture the wrong bacteria, the ones that induce obesity, and it's going to starve out the probiotics that you've got that are supposed to help you with weight loss. So that's why diet's terribly important. It's going to alter the microbes and either encourage them to grow up and help you lose weight or they'll just die off. Mm. Mm, great point. I like that. So whereabouts are we now at the moment in Australia? Like how easy is it to get a fecal matter transplant? Are we, um, you know. Before we ask the question, is it that we're also looking, there's a lot of work done in arthritis. So we're noticing patients getting significant improvement in rheumatoid, lupus. Um, patients are also with depression. A lot of patients who I've done um, fecal transplants for irritable bowel have come back and said, oh, my IBS is fixed, doc, but also my depression's gone. I said, well, you never mentioned and they said, well, depression wasn't my big problem, my gut was. But anyway, so they're looking at it, food disorders, and there are people now looking at it uh, to try and treat autism, to treat Parkinson's, to treat MS, to treat depression. So really the sky's the limit because we're seeing that there's significant changes in the gut microbiome that are different in all these uh, autoimmune and neurological disorders. So it's a really exciting time to be looking at the market and manipulating it. So I just mm. thought you'd be aware that there's a lot more work being done in a lot of different areas in this, in, in, as regards microbiome change, changing and FMT. Which is really good. I might just skip that question I asked you before because just uh, probably more on topic. Uh, you know, it's been said for many decades and many different types of, um, of therapies, whether it be what is considered to be alternative or what might be seen to be mainstream in, say, China, have considered that all disease begins in the gut. And there mm. appears to be um, a pretty significant link between many of these conditions, particularly autoimmune disease and gastrointestinal function and gastrointestinal health. So um, it's very promising, isn't it? Dr. Frooms, it's, uh, it's looking really Very good. Much. Yeah, look, there's a number of papers that have looked at what is the etiology of autoimmune disease. And we, we, we know there's a genetic predisposition and we've identified the genetic predispositions in all, all autoimmune diseases now very well. But not everybody gets autoimmune diseases who've got a genetic predisposition. And so some papers have looked at the gut microbiome and they've identified species of dysbiotic bacteria that are extremely prominent in, in each individual autoimmune disease that seem to be specific for those autoimmune diseases. And when you look at the cell wall of these bugs, there are proteins in the cell walls that look identical to bits of us. <clears throat> For example, wow. in multiple sclerosis, there are a few bacteria that have cell wall proteins that look identical to myelin basic protein, which is what's attacked in MS. Far out. 
And the third, and the same with rheumatoid um, and all the other autoimmune diseases. So like they think the third hit is you've got the wrong bacteria, you've got the unique predisposition, and then the third hit is that the permeability of your gut wall becomes abnormal. <clears throat> so bits of dying bacteria, uh, bits of metabolic um, metabolic pro, uh, metabolites that they produce now get through your gut wall. Like a leaky gut. Yeah, and your immune system says that we're under attack. <clears throat> That's not food. Mounts an immune response against that, and because it looks just like a bit of you, then it starts attacking the relevant tissue in, in our own bodies. So <clears throat> we're now looking at the gut as potentially um, one of the significant triggers of autoimmune disease. Yeah, it's so interesting, Paul. And I think what you're speaking to there speaks to one of the challenges we have uh, with some of our sort of uh, evidence-based practice approaches to health, where you know mm. we want to have that absolute highest level of evidence, which, which is very appropriate <coughs> in certain circumstances. But when we're talking about something like improving the gut and understanding the multitude of different impacts that, that can have on a multitude of different systems within the body, then, mm. then sometimes it becomes challenging to reduce that down to a you know a plus b equals c for for that highest level of evidence um, and we see these sort of challenges right throughout healthcare where we we can struggle to either because of cost or because of timing because we just haven't gotten that far yet uh, or because of as i said some of the re restrictions in that developing that type of research th yeah. that sometimes it's hard to get to that top level and and sometimes in order to wait till we do get to that top level it may mean that a whole bunch of people are missing out on something that they could have had perhaps a trial of care to see whether it might help you know how, how do you navigate around this when it comes to fecal transplants in terms of you know what level of evidence is required in order to take on a trial of care look we we always try and do things as where we can on an evidence-based in an evidence basis um, evidence-based medicine is we still think is the best way to go but with like all new things, there are, <clears throat> there's a, a period of time where we have to wait until we've got such a body of, of um, quality uh, research done uh, before it becomes accepted uh, by everybody. And so we're now at that stage with FMT in terms of um, C. diff. We're almost at that stage now with ulcerative colitis. Um, 14 studies in Crohn's disease is probably not quite enough to convince mainstream medicine. And with the other conditions, uh, that's all case reports or cohort studies. They're not good enough or strong enough for us to say this is standard of care. But there's a lot of um, people looking at that, and these studies are now underway. So we hope to get randomized, controlled, double-blind studies in the next year or two to back up the use of, ulcer, of FMT in a, these other conditions. So right now, it, all we can say to patients is, look, there is this potential, <clears throat> there is some evidence, there's all the animal evidence, there's some case reports, there's some cohort studies. Um, it's still considered experimental for these things like Parkinson's disease, MS, rheumatoid, uh, depression, etc. So that, you know, we have to inform the patients that, that that's as far as we've got and then make an informed decision based on that. But well, because... The, sorry, you go, you go. Because oh, such an enormous amount of interest in FMT and because people who are doing it are getting such a, amazing results that the, the TGA is now, um, you know, having to look at it because it's moving from 
the realms of this is ridiculous to, oh, my, um, this is something that is going to be uh, the next, I guess, the next big thing in medicine is managing the microbiome. So they're now taking a good look at FMT. Ah, it's good. It's good. We're familiar with um, that need for, you know, kind of the evidence base and at the same time, uh, you know, the exploration <clears throat> of possibility being chiropractors. We've had to look at that over the last couple of hundred or hundred and bit years. So we get that. We know where you're at with that one. You um, guys would absolutely get that. Yeah, we do. And uh, But it's great. You know, it's really good because patients speak and people, you know, let you know that things are working and you can then make better decisions. And, and obviously now that um, the TJ is looking at, at this, uh, you know, obviously with goggles on, there's uh, bigger questions <coughs> to answer and um, and hopefully tens of thousands of more people to help. So what's what's happening with the TGA at the moment? Do you um, – is it a pretty clear pathway? Not well, yeah. They've, they've had the first round meeting with um, – uh, the, the the medicos, if you like, so they've invited um, doctors and um, some of the, the professors associated with the big teaching hospitals to come in and present and a discussion paper on uh, whether they should, how they should classify fecal transplant. That document's been written and it's now available to read. The next stage, which will is due for um, meeting with the TGA, is the fifteenth of March this this year which is now open to the public to offer their input or comments on, on how they see it if they're interested. And they can read the first discussion paper and then submit their own thoughts, which is a very valuable thing to do because things only change if there's a good groundswell of people behind it. What essentially they're trying to do is to decide whether to classify it as a biological drug, <clears throat> which will mean that um, it is restricted only to the use of um Clostridium difficile and will probably just shut down all the clinics um, around Australia for good, like they've done in America. Um, yeah. We're hoping that the input from doctors and the public will uh, sway the TGA to classify it as a human tissue or an organ, which would then um, allow us to continue the uh, using FMT and continuing the amazing work we're doing at the moment. But it hangs in the balance a bit at the moment. And so I think one of the challenges we see when we talk about sort of the evidence-based medicine approach is, is sometimes, you know, when we talk about good evidence-based medicine, we talk about looking at the research, we talk about uh, listening to practitioner experience, and we talk yeah. about listening to patient preference as well as those three sort of pillars of evidence-based medicine. And, and yeah. it seems like sometimes the practitioner experience and indeed the patient preference um, doesn't get much weight when it comes to, you know, comparing it to the, the highest level of evidence, you know. Is that your experience going through this process, that, that your experience in this field and, and what you're seeing in practice and what patients are telling you is going on and what, what patients are telling you they want um, isn't necessarily being taken into account in, in the way that perhaps it could be or should be? Yeah, look, it's never, it's never taken with the same weight or gravitas as you know, high-quality medical research. It's simply not. So anything below a randomised controlled trial is really considered inferior. So it won't get the same weight and won't get looked at with the same gravity. So unfortunately, that's the way it is in medicine. Um, it's probably a good thing in many respects, but you know, which, which forces us to really evaluate our treatments thoroughly, properly in a in a controlled way, which is I think extremely important. But you know, the rest of it all gets a bit swept under the carpet sometimes. So it's difficult because those studies are very expensive to do, uh, very time consuming to do. 
And unless you can get generate significant funding, <clears throat> it takes a long time to get those research papers done. And unfortunately, <clears throat> we rely on drug companies to fund them quite a lot. Yeah, is, absolutely. Yeah. And and oh, Damien, back. Good, you go, mate. <laughs> I've got this truck that's just out at the front of my house, and I thought he was going to go away, but he's just come back again. So hopefully, no one can hear too much of this garbage truck out the front of my house. Uh, Paul, I find yeah. it so fascinating that you're breaking, you know, great ground and getting really great results. And there's obviously a groundswell. Your patients are, you know, by and large, mostly happy, which is really great. And and that's what we want. Um, if if the TGA does shut it down, let's say, for example, the TGA says, no, nah, it's a biological thing, biological medication. Uh, yeah. It can only be used for difficile clostridium or clostridium yeah. difficile. Um, then that is that that's disastrous, it seems to me. It seems like then all of a sudden we've cut off our nose to spite our face and we're back to ground zero, back to square one. Would that be yeah. the case? Yeah. I totally agree. I think it would be... Absolutely disastrous, and any any of the doctors working in that microbiome field would totally agree with that. But you know, so we're lobbying them as hard as we can, and we hope that won't happen. But that's what's happened in America, and you know, Americans can't get it. They have to go overseas to get fecal transplants for anything other than C diff, which is an right. absolute disaster. They're struggling to get data. They're desperately keen to study FNT, but you know, it's really difficult to get real life experience. They can. You know, and, and people are losing interest because it's been restricted so much over there, and that's so the we way could we be world leaders. Like, well, obviously, clearly, we are. So we could, in fact, could. be the world leaders in this. We could if the TGA leaves it alone. How can we help out with that, Doctor Frank? Is it Look, something that we can get a, a part of? Yeah, it is. Look, any member of the public can write, you know, just from a layperson's perspective, you know, voice their opinion that they think this is an important therapy that shouldn't be restricted, and that specialists, gastroenterologists should be allowed to use it um, and study it. And there's a link that I've provided with Damien where you can simply log on to that link. It takes you straight to the TGA discussion paper and there's a little blue uh, tab you press to um, download your submission form and you can just write it and then press send. And we hope yeah. that... And we'll make sure that link's in the show notes for people so they can just click on <clears throat> right on that. Fantastic. That'd be well worth doing. We'd really appreciate as much support in that area as, as we can mm. to, to lobby the TGA. Mm. Oh, we'll definitely help out there, Paul. It'd be uh, our pleasure and our honour to be able to assist with that. Uh, Paul, we're really excited by what you're working on and we hope that uh, your work with the TGA goes well and uh, we encourage you to keep on fighting the good fight. It's, uh, it's through pioneers like uh, what you're doing and or pioneering what you're doing and pioneers like you that we actually get some real significant change. So keep up the great work, Paul. Thank you for doing what you're doing. Thanks very much. And thanks for joining us on the Wellness Guys show. It's been great to have a great chat. Thank you. And thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this week's episode of the Wellness Guys show. We hope you love the new feel. Remember to continue to interact with us and tell us what you thought of this and other episodes. Please head to facebook.com forward slash the wellness guys and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. This is the way that we get to share our message with the world. For more information about Bredo and all that he's up to, please head to drbredhill.com.au and to find out more about me, head to damienchristoff.com. Until we meet again, continue to bring wellness into your life and we'll join you next time on The Wellness Guys Show. 
This has been a production of TheWellnessCouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on Facebook.com forward slash TheWellnessCouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.